pastor had a really tough week and decided to skip service on Sunday, so he organized his team in order to cover the service, and he decided to go for a hike. And one day while he's, in the, while he's on his hike in the middle of the woods, he comes upon an angry bear. The bear stood up on its hind legs and growled ferociously, clearly preparing to charge. In panic, the pastor starts to run, but the bear followed close on his heels. Finally, the hiker came to a cliff, and so he dropped to his knees and asked God to please make this bear a good Christian bear. <laughs> to the hiker's amazement, to the pastor's amazement, excuse me, the, the bear suddenly stopped growling, fell to his knees, and folded his paws together in prayer. Thank you, Lord, exclaimed the pastor. And in response, thank you, Lord, exclaimed the bear, for this meal for which I'm about to partake of the Jesus name. <laughs> Got any more? Ah, I don't. All the rest are dad jokes. Amen. Come on. Open with, open with me to Mark chapter 16. Put your finger on verse 14. You're going to get there before I do. The title of my message this morning is On Your Street. While you're doing that, put your hand on your belly and just say this, Jesus, Jesus. Help. help. Amen. All right, we're good. Let's do this. I felt it appropriate before I jumped into my message, I, I, uh, just to share a little bit about who I am. And uh, My wife and I have been, you know, participants here and participants. We've been joining and just running after God with you guys uh, since, I think, actually November. And we've really come to call you family. We love this, the leadership team here. We love everything about what God is doing with Bristol Hope. And unfortunately, given the context of my life now, I'm working right now as, as, as an apprentice plumber. My wife owns her own business. And I don't, you know, we also have two escaped orangutans from the zoo that we call Nathaniel and Micah. Uh, and so I don't, we don't have the ability, really truthfully, and the privilege to be able to sit down with every single one of you and to get to know you in the depth that you deserve. And so I felt that it was appropriate just to share a little bit about our life and who we are. And, uh, June 9th of 2012, I married the most beautiful, incredible woman in the world to me. That ray of sunshine sitting right there. And uh, we've, uh, like I said, we've, we have, uh, we've got two sons, Nathaniel and Micah, a three and a half and a one and a half year old. And uh, we've, you know, bounced around. God has moved us all over the place. We, I'm originally from Boston, Massachusetts, well, the Boston area. And uh, which, please don't hold that against me. I know I'm in Philadelphia territory, so God bless the Eagles. I'll pray for them throughout the season. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was led to the Lord when I was 11 years old. On a Friday night, my mom came home after a powerful encounter with the Lord. She had been called out by a prophetess at a little, small, 20-person church. And she came home and she, she sat or, or stood, at the, uh, stood at the kitchen sink and began to cry. But it wasn't a cry that I was used to. She took what she called her happy pills, which were really a, a antidepressants that she was taking due to the, a lot of the sexual and physical abuse she experienced as a young lady. And she threw them in the trash, and she wept and cried. And I remember the joy that I saw in her face that first time when I was 11. And she began to preach to me the gospel of, of Christ. Every night, right before bed, we would just pray, and she would read the gospels. And the only context that I had in the relationship with Christ was what my mom told me, what I read in Scripture, and what I, what I had seen him do in her life. Five years later, my father followed suit. He had had a radical encounter with the Lord in the middle of the night and was delivered of 35 years of alcoholism. I remember that night, we were on a, community, uh, a communal uh, camping trip with our church at the time, and my mom had picked me up from work. It was about 7.30, 8 o'clock. I got off. I was working at a little deli there uh, up in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and I got in the car. She had tear stains on her, on her cheeks. I could tell she'd been crying. I asked her dad was. She said he was at home drunk, and she just couldn't take it anymore. And so we got back to the, we got back to the campsite. Understandably, as a 16-year-old man, you're kind of torn because you don't really know. It's the father, the man who's designed to protect and provide safety and provision. And, but you have such an anger and such a frustration because of what his, you know, what his actions are causing and drawing his family into. And so the, the next morning, my dad shows up at the campsite. He comes over with tears in his eyes and he embraces me, and I do so, and I, I embrace him reluctantly. But I did so, and it was the first time I had ever heard the voice of God speak to my heart. And he said, you're, you're holding a broken man. Watch what I do with his life. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. A year later, my mom asked me if I wanted to go to a mission trip. And I grew up in a small AG church. And AG churches, you know, mission trips were kind of like a rite of passage. And so everyone goes to a foreign country, preaches the gospel, and builds a house. 
So I figured, why not? Let's do it. You know? I love working with my hands. It's a passion of mine. Let's do it. Let's have a good time. Lo and behold, I, I really did not understand the context of the trip. And so she said, listen, there's a portion of the trip where you could be signed up to be a teacher. Would you like to teach? And I had preached a few times at my church at the time. I was being mentored by my senior pastor. And I said, yeah, let's do it. Let's go to another country. Let's preach the gospel. Well, when I got down there, I never asked what I was supposed to be preaching on. And they said, I went, I was a part of a small group that was being trained three days before the rest of the trip had arrived. And they get down there and they're like, we're going to teach you how to teach people to prophesy until you're expected to leave miracle services. And I said, well, there's two problems with that. Number one, I don't know how to spell prophecy. And number two, I've never seen a miracle. So I may be in the wrong place. So I'm in the heart of Sao Paulo, Brazil. And I'm like, I might need to get a plane home. I remember the encounter. There was, no, there was no building churches. We were building a church, but it wasn't the physical. Mm. The power, the encounters, I began to have everything that, everything that I had known about Jesus, because Jesus was only what I viewed him through the scripture, and the two moments that I had watched him change my parents' life. I didn't know why he changed their life. I didn't know how he did it. All I knew was that he could. And so I began, to, I began to explore this Jesus, and I began to realize on this trip when I was 17 years old that the Jesus that I didn't know was more powerful than the one that I did. And I started to yield that. I started to surrender my life, and I began to experience his love. It was that trip still to this day. What's a word that can define what that trip does to me? It plagues me. I think that's the most dramatic word I can think of. It plagues me. It plagues me to the degree that it's just a, a constant reminder of something that had happened that trip. I remember the worship service. You know, I had been in worship services before, but never to the degree where I'm laying on the floor for hours at a time with power coursing through my body, angelic visitations in the middle of the night where I'm having these lights and these things show up in my room, and my, my roommate and I are up in the middle of the night praying and seeking God. I'm just, I'm constantly, constantly overwhelmed with this amount of love that had completely wrecked my heart, because up to that point, I believe love could only be ascertained by performance. I was a straight-A student. I was top of the class. I was the best baseball player on my team. I was, a, I was everything. I, I needed to be the best of the best because I thought that the best of the best were those that got loved. But when I met Jesus, I realized I couldn't do anything to get more of it. It just came because of who he called me. And I remember that trip as if it was yesterday. It rocked my world, man. I, I, you know, I would begin to, we, we would go to these miracle services and I would pray for people. And, and for some reason, the concept of praying for pain to leave someone's body was easy for me to understand. I don't understand why. Just bear with me. But I remember the second to last night we were there. It was the last, the last night we were there. We would have a celebration. And the following day, we would go and get on a plane and go home. And so it was the second to last night. We're at the last Service. We had been uh, sent out to go into these smaller churches, probably about 25, 30 people at a time. And, and there were very small local churches in the Sao Paulo area. And I remember getting there. I had done, I did my teaching. We preached. And then we released the ministry team to start praying for healing. And so I'm sitting there. And, and one of the young Brazilian guys that was there, we had you know, built a relationship, Paulo. And him and I, we go over. And we find this one young man. And for some reason, I was drawn to this young man who's in a wheelchair. I have no idea why I've never seen a wheel. I've never seen God heal someone out of a wheelchair. I don't even have really a spectrum to understand what that looks like. Again, I understand. I walk up. I put my hand. Pain goes because of the name of Jesus. For some reason, that just makes sense to me. But the idea of a wheelchair clearing, uh -uh, no way. But I'm there, and I'm, I, I come to find out that this young man has a number of issues. But one of the biggest issues, understandably, is the fact that from his waist down, no muscles work in his body. He's been, he's been paralyzed since he was born. He's never stood up. He's never walked before. You know, his mom and dad are very well versed, and they're very involved with the church. And, and, and his pastor has been you know, pouring into the family for some time. And they have come to just ask for prayer for healing for their son. And so me and Paulo were sitting there you know, kneeling next to him. We're at about 20, 25 minutes of prayer. And again, I have no idea of what I'm really actually praying for. <laughs> sure, the idea of a wheelchair empty sounds really cool, but... Come on, it's a wheelchair. Like, the dude's paralyzed. And so I'm sitting there, and 25, 30 minutes go by, I'm exhausted. I have no faith for this. I have really no understanding of what's taking place. I'm, I'm now at about 35 minutes, 40 minutes goes by, and the young kid says, I want to stand up. I'm like, let's do it, dude. So we stood him up. I put his arm around me, and I put his, arm, his other arm around Paulo, and, and we start to walk. 
and the younger, and we start to walk, and I'm carrying all of his weight. I can feel his weight in my shoulders, and he's just dragging his feet, dragging his feet. So I'm becoming more discouraged, and I, I don't quite understand exactly what I'm doing, but now we're at about 40 minutes, 45 minutes. He says, put me back in my seat. I'm like, dude, you're going to train right now, man. You are running the show. Let's do it. So we put him in his seat. We begin to pray again. Another 10 minutes goes by. I want to stand again. Okay. We put his arm around me, arm around Paul. We begin to walk again. And we're, we're, you know, again, he's dragging his feet. There's nothing happening. Now at this point, about 45 minutes in, the pastor's now watching. The mother is watching with her hands clasped. She's been obviously very anxious about what's taking place. The rest of the ministry team has stopped praying. There's no more people to pray for. The rest of the, the, the you know, the, the congregation's now watching us. 25, 30 people sitting there watching us. And he says, put me back in my seat. I want to keep praying. And I said, buddy, I said, let's do it. You have more faith than me, and I'm the one here facilitating your healing. So let's do it. So we put him back in his seat. We're now at about 55 minutes, a buck, buck five, that we've been praying for this kid. And buck 10, buck 15, I'm, I'm getting tired. Boss is ready. They're honking, wondering why the team's not on there. But no one is letting us stop praying. And so he says, I want to stand up again. I said, all right, good, let's do it. And we stand up and we put his arm around me, one arm around Paulo. And all of a sudden we start to walk, he's dragging his feet. And all of a sudden, in just a mere matter of seconds, I begin to feel his weight shift in my shoulder. And his left leg comes up and stomps on the ground. Now instantly, I look at Paulo and I instantly get angry because someone just lied to me. Right? <laughs> Y'all told me he was paralyzed. I'm not computing. My small, puny brain is just not understanding. <laughs> I look at Paulo and I continue to walk, and all of a sudden his right leg comes up and stomps down. We do it three more times, and the entire church is in complete gasping. They're up, everyone's just sitting there staring. We have no idea what to do. I'm like, what do we keep praying? Like, what? And he says, put me back in my seat. I said, you got it, buddy. Let's do it. So we put him back in the seat. The pastor's now sitting, everyone's watching, the mother's beginning to cry. We go into, now we're at about 30, about 35, and we've been praying for this kid. He says, I want to stand again. And I said, okay. And someone had taken his mom and put her about 15, 20 feet away from him. You know, kind of like when you have like a kid. When, when my oldest was learning to walk, I would take like a little piece of candy and throw it on the other side of the room just to see if he could like, you know, do his little thing, you know. I'm like, maybe we'll coax Scott. Let's see if we can manipulate King Jesus to come, you know. Put his mom on the other side. So we put his mom about 15, 20 feet away. And we stand him up. And we put one arm on, on myself and Paulo. And we begin to walk. And he starts to stomp. He starts to stomp. And I'm like, I, I, have, I have no grip for what's taking place. And all of a sudden he says, stop. And he takes his arm. And, and he moves his arms off of our shoulders. And he begins to take his first steps. And then all of a sudden, he takes off running to his mom. Paulo jumps in my arms. I begin to weep. I begin to scream at the top of my lungs. Every, everybody in the church begins to freak out. They're all clapping. They're screaming. The, the, the pastor's on the floor, and he's weeping. His mother is holding her son, but at 13 years of age, never before had he walked to her to give her a hug before in his entire life. And I have this moment, right? I have this moment. I have this moment where I had just witnessed a wheelchair no longer needing, no longer being a place of accessibility, no longer being a place of use in this young man's life. And, and I, I have this moment, understand that everyone's freaking out, everyone's crying, the kingdom of God came, and I watched the kingdom of God come and invade a room in, in the suburb of Sao Paulo, Brazil, and it commanded pain and infirmity, a lack of muscle, to bow its knee to the reality of Jesus in someone's life. And I had this moment, can I tell you about this moment? Yeah? All right. I'm going to tell you anyway because i got the mic. Okay. I have this moment. In this moment, I'm freaking out. Everything externally, like I'm crying, I'm hollows in my arms, we're spinning around, dancing, this crazy thing. We're like losing it. The entire church is going wild. And, and I have this moment. Anyone seen the, the movie 300? There's a scene in the movie 300 where the opposing army, the fleet of ships, is being destroyed in the water, and the entire, the 300 soldiers there are freaking out, but the captain is holding a shield like this, staring at the army, and he is totally stoic, even though everyone else around him is freaking out. It was like one of those moments for me in, in, the, you know, in that time, where everything on my outside is freaking out, but I, I, I realize something is going on inside of me. And this moment happened like this. I realized, I realized, and I wasn't comfortable with the realization. I, 
I was, in fact, I was very discomforted by it. But I realized that I would never go back to being able to live a life without miracles again. Mm. I would never be able to go back to living a life where I didn't see darkness bow its knee. I've seen too much. That doesn't just change our life. It changes the game. And what I've come to realize, and in, 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 in my youth, in my youth, and as I've continued to pursue the presence of God and the growing and growing in the revelation of Jesus, I've realized as I've studied Scripture and what Scripture validates and what Scripture promotes for us to understand is that the, the entire purpose of our Christianity is not for the lens or for not for the purpose of self-preservation. It's for the purpose of discipling nations. Mm-hmm. But what's fascinating, can I tell you what's fascinating? I find that the church, okay, hear me, please, hear me, hear my heart, because I'm a part of it, right? I'm a part of it. I'm a part of the church. But I don't think the church has the ability to disciple nations, because she's not good at discipling herself just yet. I want to I speak to kings and queens. I want to prophesy over but if I can't take care of my health, that's a problem. I want to go into the worst of the worst battleground, battle-ridden, blood-soaked areas and preach the gospel of the kingdom. But if I can't listen to my wife when she asks me to do the dishes, that's a problem. If I can't be present for my sons who need a father more than anything else right now in their formative years, how then can I be present for a people who need a representation of King Jesus? I need to disciple me. I disciple any other nation. And what I've come to the realization of in this process and in this growth of, of growing in King, in, in the King Jesus, is that I have I started to realize that I move out of conviction. I'm a very passionate person. Okay. I have come to the realization that God is Italian. Okay? Just, <laughs> just saying it out loud. Why? Because he speaks with his hands. Alright? He moves in the power of God. When the power comes, it's his hands moving in the world. That is an Italian father. Alright? I grew I grew, when you see my father, you're like, now I know why he's as crazy as he is. Not just because my dad's bald, but also because he's just loud and he's crazy and obnoxious and it's awesome. But I've come to this realization. <laughs> I've come to this realization that I move out of conviction. And so many of us move out of our convictions. So many of us move out of what we're convinced by. Mark 16 does a beautiful job. Let's look at verse 14, can we? Uh, oh, I might have broken it. There we go. Let me read this to you. Mark chapter 16, verse 14. It says, Afterward he had appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at a table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all of the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs, say these signs. These signs. Verse 17, and these signs will accompany those who believe in my name, and they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and they will drink, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Say recover. Verse 19, it says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Say the word believe. believe. Verse 17 uses a really unique word. I like this word. I don't like, I like this word in the Greek. I don't like this word in the English. I like this word in the Greek because when the Greek wrote, when the Greeks interpret this word, when they see this word in their language, they think, they actually view this word as not just a belief system in the sense that I understand knowledge, right? My good man here has a white shirt. This white shirt, I understand, is knowledge. I'm not necessarily so convinced by a white shirt that it provokes me to move. But in the Greek, that's what that word means. It means that you are so convinced by what you believe. You are so convicted by the reality that you believe that it actually provokes you to action. Let me put it to you this way. My wife, this is not a plug for Rosie's Gourmet. My wife makes some of the best baked goods in the entire world. Okay? I am, I am so willing, I am so convinced of by, by the good, by how delicious these baked goods are, I bring them for coworkers. 
Like, I actually will bring, like, a, a, like a package of four cupcakes to my rough-and-tough plumbing foreman, who's, like, all tatted up and scars and all this stuff. I'm like, here, dude, here's some cupcakes. He's like, thanks, dude. Like, that's awesome. Why am I bringing cupcakes? Because I'm convinced by the fact that they're so good, I actually want to share the goodness with someone else. Amen. And what I'm finding is that people who are interested in evangelizing or interested in sharing or witnessing them, going after it and pursuing their, their God-given dream and God-given purpose in their life, they're simply trying to do it through obligatory behavior instead of going back to what you're convinced of. Amen. That's really good. And sometimes... Sometimes I need more conviction in my life. Listen, I, I was raised by a team of prophets. I, I, one of my mentors is, is a travels extensively, and I, I traveled with him for about three and a half years and worked an additional three helping him plant two churches in the Westchester area. I love conferences. I love power encounters. I love though I have been I've been blessed to sit under amazing men and women of God. I've had radical impartations. But I've come to the realization that if I had never have another impartation in my life, I'm very okay. Because I believe that we have become, especially the Pentecostal charismatic movement, we've become consumed with the idea of ascertaining more power. When, to be honest with you, all power was released when the, when the, when the grave was empty. I believe the church doesn't need more power. She needs more conviction. She needs to be convinced more. She needs to remind herself what she's convinced of. She needs to remind herself what, what, what convicts her, what, what moves her to that place of being able to share. Hey, let me share with you a cupcake. But really in, in, in a place of allowing ourselves to say, God, what are you doing in me that I then get to reproduce in other people? And I believe that there are two key facets. There are two key facets that I believe that will enable us to truly begin to embody to embody and carry the vision of why Bristol Hope Assembly, why we even gather. Because if church is simply designed for the gathering of a Sunday morning service, we've mi missed the purpose of why the cross right. was endured. Was Listen, I love singing our songs. Like I wish, I wish Mario and Jess could sing me to sleep every night. Like it's amazing. I wanted, I want us to do a recording. I absolutely love it. But. If I need someone else to lead me in worship in order for me to encounter my Jesus, I might be having, I might be a little off. Yeah. I want to embody the true essence of why we gather. I've seen too much. I'm convinced of too much. I, I don't believe anymore that I'm allowed to live a life without miracles. And maybe you're saying, well, that seems a bit crass. That might be a bit, you know, condemning for you to say I'm supposed to see miracles. But to be honest with you, it's not really me who said. It's not really me who said it. I, I, I look at the present day theology. I look at the present day, you know, uh, tone that the church is putting out in the earth right now. And it seems very, um, it seems preserving of self in many ways. And again, I'm part of her. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be rude. I, I talked with Pastor Dave a lot about, you know, the context or, or creating a foundation for evangelism and and I shared, you know, because he'd asked, I said, share a little bit about evangelism, you know, stir faith. And I said, man, I said, before I can stir faith, before I can talk about evangelism, I really believe that we need to assess what we're convinced of. Because telling people to go out and evangelize or creating context, you know, because I know there's already been a foundation of evangelism late. We have some amazing men and women who are sharing the gospel from these, you know, I mean, Pastor Ruth getting up and sharing. We all could have gone home after that, you know, <laughs> after that little sermon on on. Uh, on tithe and offering. Like, we have incredible teachers. I know there's a foundation laid already. People know that they have a desire to go out, and sometimes we miss or we, we go beyond. You know what it is? We get in the way of ourselves. Yep. We get in the way of ourselves. So quickly, so easily. And I've come to the realization I, I really believe in something that I'm living out. I believe there's two main key points that we need to return back to and we need to evaluate how these points actually affect our lives. How are we pursuing these? And these are two things that I actually, I studied out in college when I was pursuing my degree. And it, it fascinated me. 
these, these points. Can I share what these points with, our, with you guys? The first one is liminality. Or I'm sorry, the first one is communitas. And communitas happens in situations where individuals are driven to find one another through a common experience of ordeal, humbling, transition, and marginalization. It involves intense feelings of social togetherness and belonging brought about by having to rely on one another in order to survive. In ways, communitas is what creates and renews a tribal culture. As I began to pursue, when I first got back from that trip when I was 17, I began to read the book of Acts because I saw God moving powerfully in the book. I saw him doing things and I needed to know how I could make this a, real, a reality in my life. How do I begin to walk out the truth of the gospel in my life? And I started to see in Acts chapter 2, in verses 40 through 47, some of the, some of the most prominent things that the disciples did was that they ate together. Like they prayed together. Like this was this was simple stuff. There wasn't there wasn't like some massive schematic or formula that was necessary for them to walk in it. But they 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 did life together. In fact, one of the traditions that they instituted was that they collect they created a collective pool where people would put their finances in, and anyone in the community that had need, they would pull finances so that everyone in the community had no need. Now I'm not saying that we swap credit cards. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I may not like some of the credit cards y'all have, and you may not like the ones I got, but what I am saying is that there is a, what I believe that God is doing is he's restoring communitas back to the body of Christ. That he's creating, that there is a place of community that's necessary if we are going to see revival in the age to come. If we're going to see revival even now. I mean, if you look at some of the, the modern moves of God, the, you know, the church of Iraq, the underground church of China, I, I've studied these missionary, these missionary accounts very closely. It fascinates me. Not only is there a fire burning as a result of the persecution, but it's, it, it, there's, there's, there's a context of relationship. There's a context where people are doing life together, so much so that they're literally risking their lives together. And as a result of what they're walking through, they're finding a bond that, that is drawing them closer together as a result of what they're navigating together. And I'm finding that communitas is absolutely necessary if Bristol Hope is going to be the catalyst of seeing Bristol Hope or, or Bristol, uh, Bristol Borough changed for Jesus. I believe communitas is necessary. So how then, if communitas is our goal, how then do we get to communitas? We must first understand liminality. You see, liminality, liminality is where we find ourselves out of our comfort zones, the unfamiliar, where we feel at risk, face a challenge, or are deliberately on an adventure. And it is absolutely critical in the formation of communitas, as it is to learning, discipleship, healthy psychology, character development, child rearing, and just about all forms of innovations and entrepreneurship. Refusal, listen to this, I'm quoting Alan Hirsch here from his book, The Forgotten Ways. Refusal to engage in essential risk leads to fearful neurosis and the decline of any living system, be it an organism, individual, or community. I believe, I believe God is asking us to embrace our life I believe that he's, he's inviting us to come back to that place where we're beginning to trust him with our process. I believe that he's inviting us into the hard, the hard times again. Because when we practice liminality in our lives, we then can exhibit liminality with the community that we are to adopt. What if, what if we had people who began to own their street and you began to know what was really happening behind closed doors in the, in the house next to you. You knew that three doors down there was a single mom with three kids who were struggling to put food on the table and you had the opportunity to make the biggest meal you had and invite them over to your house so that they got around you and they got around your children because you wanted to force yourself into a place of liminality, that place of tension, risk, and awkwardness so that they could encounter something new as a result of your life. Yeah. What if we began to own the businesses Bristol Borough. We begin not just to patronize them, but we also begin to get to know the owners. We begin to actively pray for them. 
We begin to actively be participants in their lives. We begin to pray for their, we begin to pray for their, their, their associates and their employees. We begin to pray for blessing over their community. What if we begin to truly adopt what Bristol Borough is struggling with? Perhaps they have, a, you know, they have an issue with uh, such and such, and we made it our, our choice. We made it our uh, intentionality to actually adopt those problems so that the, the community's problems wasn't just the police issue's problems or the fire department's issue or the government's problem. It became the church's problem. What if we began to own our streets to the degree? See, I, I can already feel people being like, oh, okay. Because that does to me as well, right? The idea that church would exist to embrace liminality with its, with its community is foreign. It's a foreign concept. We have thousands of churches in the city of Philadelphia. And yet we have some of the highest murder rates in the, in, in the country. Something's not computing. Something's not computing. We have to exist with a purpose. And if my purpose is merely to exist for the sake of myself, miss the reason why he was beaten to the point that he was. You don't need to be desecrated the way he was for me to be able to preserve and have a great and awesome life. God wants you to have a great and awesome life. I'm not saying anything about it. I like the finer things in life, okay? That's great. But if the finer things in life are the only things I'm pursuing, I'm missing the point. I'm missing the point. So how do we embrace liminality for a community? We first have to look at ourselves. Not introspection for the sake of being introspective. I don't like doing that. That's not my joyful. I don't like going deep down inside of me to figure out what's wrong. I just like looking at Jesus. Because if I'm constantly looking deep down at what's wrong with me, I get discouraged. I don't think anyone's gone inside before and been like, I'm a really awesome person. Liminality <laughs> like, has to start in the house. Liminality has to start the house. Liminality has to start with our spouses. And it, sometimes it may even have to start with us. Liminality, I realized, was one, was one feature, one facet of my life that I simply was trying to avoid. Because I was so good at praying for anybody and everybody on the street that I used it as validation because I was seeing miracles in the marketplace. But I used that as a reason, to, as a cop-out, to say I don't want to go through the hard times with Christ. Because I don't know what, look, what it looks like to actually trust God. So I'll just keep doing ministry when really God was interested in me ministering to him before I ministered to anybody else. And so two years ago, 2018, I had a nervous breakdown. I began to have five or six panic attacks a day. Some of them got so bad I was towed away in an ambulance. My wife is trying desperately to find a way to support me as I'm pacing the yard for hours at a time. My, young, my youngest, or my oldest son at the time was obviously trying to play, and I really can't even get out of my own way. But I remember shaking. I mean, there was a point where even in August of 2018, my wife went on a, a family vacation. I couldn't go on a family vacation because the idea of being in a car for that long made me so nervous I started to panic. And so I started having these attacks that were getting so overwhelming that while my wife was on vacation, I had gotten towed away in an ambulance. And when I got back from the hospital, I asked my mom to come over. And at the age of 28 years old, I had my mother sleep on the other side of the bed with me because I was so nervous I was going to die that night. Right in the thick of all of that, all of that, right in the thick of all of that, I got a phone call from my from an old friend of mine from work that I had used to work at, and my best friend that he was still working at the time. And I got a call, and he said, "Hey, man, food didn't show up to work today. Can you stop over?" And Foster had started to was still struggling significantly with alcohol, and unfortunately, on August seventh of two thousand eighteen, I stopped over at his apartment and I found him after he'd taken his own life. And so I'm in the thick of this this demonic deliverance season, this encounter with God, where. I, I'm, I'm trying desperately to survive every day. I've been navigating the grief of walking it through with what I had just encountered with my best friend of 15 years, and I'm still in this process of trying to figure out what this looks like. And I remember one particular morning, I'll never forget this morning, where I was at 4 a.m., still shaking, cold sweats in the middle, of the middle of the summer heat, and I'm sitting there on the porch in the front yard, and I'm crying, and I'm just crying out to God. I said, Dad, I don't know what is going on. If you're trying to kill me, you're doing a great job. I said, but I just... I just can't do this anymore. And I heard these words come out of my mouth. And, he said, and I said, I'm not enough. If you don't show up, I'm not enough. And I heard it as clear as day. He goes, finally. Finally. He said, finally. I can work with a man who thinks he's not enough. I can't work with a man who thinks he's his own God. 
And when I began to realize that God was beginning to deliver me, and I didn't get to tell him how he was going to do it, and I began to embrace, I began to yield and surrender to the hard times when God would put his finger on a place in my heart, on a place of a belief system that needed to change. And instead of shying away from it, I embraced it and said, God, whatever it is, I trust you. If it takes my life, you're in charge of it. And I began to practice these little things day in and day out. I began to practice what it meant to, to, to actually walk through the process of growing in my own life where Jesus wasn't just the miracle worker that you know would, would show up in the marketplace. Listen, guys, I was going in. It didn't matter where I was. It was whether it was Stop and Shop or Acme, Giant, Wawa, whatever. It didn't matter. God would show up, and I knew because I was convinced of something. But I wasn't convinced. See, there's a difference between serving God as a Savior but then serving God as Lord. Because Jesus can be your Savior in the sense that when you close your eyes and breathe your last, you're going home. But then there's a difference between actually serving Him as Lord in your day-to-day -day life. There's a very big difference. And most people, they're, they're really good at knowing that Jesus is Savior, that He's been saved, that He has saved their lives, but they're very, very, they struggle significantly with actually serving God as Lord in their life. And so every, every day I began to practice. I began to look for the opportunities. God, what are you trying to be to me today that you couldn't have been to me yesterday? And I started to observe that my prayer language and my times of questioning began to change. I stopped praying for the pain to stop. I stopped praying for the panic to stop. It wasn't stopping. Why waste my breath? And it wasn't because God didn't want to answer my prayer. I soon realized that God was interested, yes, in getting the panics to stop. But see, sometimes I've observed in my life and in my 10 years of being of working with different local church ministries, I've realized that the church prays for the pain to stop, but she doesn't pray hard enough for us to actually, not just for the pain to stop, for us to actually acquire an authority over the pain. Come on. We'll pray for the problem to go away but not pray for us to be changed in the midst of the problem. We'll pray for the difficulty stop to stop, and, but we won't actually pray to the degree where we're embracing the reality of Christ, where he says in, in, in Matthew chapter 16, he says, pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me daily. What does that actually mean? That actually means that I'm willing, and listen, I want to communicate clearly, so please pray for me. I want you to understand God is not interested in ignoring you. He's not interested in trying to tell you that your prayers don't matter or that he's not going to stop the situation or the problem that you're going in. What I believe God revealed to me in that season and what I continue to practice to this day and it's yielding fruit is that I'm done worrying about a problem being solved and actually looking for God to show himself in the midst of my problem. I want to be the Christian that when I navigate an issue and when I walk through fire, I can come out on the other side not smelling like smoke because it's possible. Why? Because Jesus did. The only man who had permission to be offended. And he still chose not to be offended. The only, the only man who had endured rejection and abandonment. And his first response was to love. And so I began to recognize that liminality was necessary. And the gospel account that was coming out of my life, I began to preach without words. My life, the way people saw it, by the way I handled myself, the way I handled my wife, the way I treated my son, they began to observe my life in a new way. They began to see that there was, there was a greater sense of security. And I started to utilize this opportunity to embrace the hard part, to embrace the process, because I wanted to see God move in me. Because I'm realizing, again, that, that notion that I had encountered at 17 years old. I can't disciple nations unless I've discipled myself. I can't disciple the things that God's called me to if I can't steward what he's already put in my hand. We're making grand and powerful claims. We're praying into certain things that I believe we need to continue to pray for and increase our prayer for. But yes, pray. But then we yield ourselves and surrender to the realities of Christ so that he can come and say, this needs to change. And I'm going to walk you through that process of change. This needs to, this needs to uh, uh, shift. And, and I started to see that God was using those places of brokenness, not to expose me for the sake of exposing me, but to reveal himself to me in those hours. And in that time, I began to see his power in a way that I never saw. I began to encounter the Jesus that I knew was possible in the scriptures. And I began to, I began to see, man, there is something powerful about walking out 
this process. And liminality needs to start at the house. Evangelism, sharing the gospel. We have we, we have amazing stories. We have amazing testimonies coming out of this out of this community. We have incredible leaders that have laid a foundation. I want to. I'm not merely trying to redefine the wheel. What I'm merely trying to do is to contribute to the conversation and perhaps to give us an opportunity to reevaluate our focus and reevaluate our priorities. Because if we cannot walk through the liminal stages in our life, we cannot Bristol Hope or Bristol Borough cannot expect us to walk through the liminal stages that's necessary for the kingdom of God to come. This isn't going to come lightly. There's a proverb that says that when the oxen are away, things are clean. But only, only abundance comes from the strength of the ox. What does that mean? It means when things are in order, it's good. Things are clean. But if you want abundance, it's going to be messy. You want to, you want to survive? You can survive all the way to the greater last. You want to thrive? That's messy. You want to live with power? That's messy. You want a healthy marriage? That's messy. You want a healthy life? That's messy. And I don't mean to imply messy in the sense that it's you know dysfunctional or that it's you know, that it, it's out of chaos or disorder. What I'm merely trying to say is that it will require a level of personal sacrifice. But I promise you, you'll never pay a sacrifice that's not worth what he's already paid for. You'll never pay something that wasn't worth what you get in exchange. Amen. I've started to see that. It's something that I practice. You can ask my wife. We, we are intentional about practicing this in our lives because I believe that, I believe that God, has, God has begun to move in my heart. He's begun to move in my heart in a dramatic way and in a dramatic fashion. And I started to, I, I've, truth, I've truly began to yield and surrender because I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't understand oftentimes what this future is going to look like. But I know for a fact that God is calling us to a place where we are to be catalysts in our spheres of influence of watching the kingdom of God come. That not just revival would come. Not just revival for it to come so that we can say, okay, hey, revival's here, but there's actually implications. There needs to be something that takes place in our lives that allows us to actually embody and walk out the fullness of what he's called us to. This is how I want to close. I was praying during that season in 2018. And I had asked the Lord, I said, I don't, I don't know what kicker I need, but can you, can you show me how to pursue this? And I remember a prayer time in the middle of that season, and he said, I want to I teach you how to be violent. And I said, violent? He said, yeah, I want to teach you how to be violent again. One of my favorite scriptures when I was growing up was Matthew 11, 12, and I never understood why it was one of my favorite scriptures. I just knew that I, you know, I was a brute, and I liked breaking things and destroying things tearing them down and blowing them up. And so the idea of being violent was just really fun to me. But the idea of kingdom violence really looked dramatically different. And he said, I went and he reminded me there was a time in a situation where I had to defend, where I, I had to defend my, you know, I was, I was, I think I was 17 at the time. My girlfriend and I at the time when I was in high school, we were at, a, at the beach. My mom was coming in on a boat. And there was a guy floating in the water. His boat had stalled out in the middle of the pond. And he started to float on a raft and kicking, you know, swimming back to shore. And as they approached, they were, they, my mom was on the boat with my older sister and her and her daughter. And uh, they were coming in and said, sir, you know, do, do you need some help? And they said, no, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. They're like, well, we can toss your raft and we can, you know, we can tow you to, tow you to the shore. No, no, I'm okay. And, as, and all of a sudden, I got this phone call. And she goes, I need you down at the, I need you down at the dock. There's a man in the water and he's cussing and screaming at me and your sisters and your sister and your niece are, are really scared. And something happened in me. Like, something happened. I blacked out. I run. I run down. And I can hear the guy as she's coming to the dock. I can hear him. He's just saying all kinds of nasty profanities to my mom. For what reason, I have no idea. I'm clearly drunk. And I I run down, I jump off the dock into like knee water, and I ripped my shirt off. Like so that like literally like full on caveman. And, and, and I start losing it on this 
this guy. Okay, I'm 17 years old. My mom's trying to calm me down. She's like, shut up, I'm talking. Don't say those things. I'm all doing it. I can hear you. You know, like, and I'm just losing it. And I'm like, I'm ready. I am ready to rip this man's face off and slap on the back of his head and send him the other way. Like, I am fully ready for this moment. My blood is through the roof. My heart is racing. And as I'm in the middle of this prayer time with the Father in the dead, in the dead heat of this, season, of this season in 2018, the Lord reminds me of that time. And he goes, that same violence, I want you to, to exhibit in your relationship where there's, where there's things in our life that need to change. If there is a place in your life that needs to change that's impeding my ability to connect with you, I want you to exhibit violence on it. If there is something that is that's that's happening in your sphere of influence where someone is being, where darkness is being, is tormenting a friend, would you not exhibit violence? If you watched one a little one from this church being attacked by someone, would you not lose yourself? Amen. We have lost our violence streak. We've become compromised, we've become complacent towards the idea that we are actually participants in this covenant with the Father, a covenant that we get to live out and manifest to the king to the world around us so that the nations desire what we have. And I have begun to practice this violence. I begin to practice this so that I know that no stone left would be left unturned. That if there's something, and I begin to practice this liminality in my life because I know there's a point coming and there's a time coming where God is going to ask me to pay a sacrifice, to walk out liminality, to see communitas instilled in the city of Philadelphia, and it will be a sacrifice that I may not be able to pay or may not be comfortable paying, but will be willing to because I've I've stewarded the small line of my moments already. So when he asks me to pay that cost, and when he asks me to yield as a sacrifice and to go after the, 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 the purpose of why we're here in this region, I can say yes because I've already stewarded before. I've already given my liminal moments. When my wife says, I need you to change, there's something that's impacting our connection. It changes immediately, and I'm violent towards it. When there's something that inhibits my ability to exemplify and model a good father to my sons, it changes immediately. It doesn't matter what's necessary. I will walk out the process of healing. If there's something that needs to change where God says something, but I believe something else, it will change immediately because I practice my life my moments. And I've said, God, what you say matters more than anything else. And if we can't get to this place where we practice our mentality in our lives, Bristol Brown cannot expect us to do it with that. There is a purpose of why we gather. There is a purpose of what we're Communitas is possible. Communitas, that place where we have a sense of belonging, where we have a sense of one of oneness, of togetherness, of unity. That is that is 100 percent attainable. But we're consistently crying out for something that we're not willing to make a sacrifice for. Amen. Sorry, I just at that point it sounds like a waste of my breath. So I I have to go back and say, Dad, where are the places in me? That I can revive towards. Can I read you something? I, I believe that God is releasing violence again in this hour. Charles Spurgeon said this. I, I found this to be so powerful. This is how I want to close. Charles Spurgeon was quoted saying, Frequently, complaints are made in surprise expressed by individuals who have never found a blessing rest upon anything they have attempted to do in the service of God. I have been a Sunday school teacher for years, says one, and I have never seen any of my girls or boys converted. I have never, no, and the reason most likely is you have never been violent about it, he says. You've never been compelled by the divine spirit to make up your mind that converted they should be and no stone should be left unturned until they were. You have never been brought by the spirit to such a passion that you have said, I cannot live unless God bless me. I cannot exist unless I see some of these children saved. Then falling on your knees in the agony of prayer and putting forth afterwards your trust with the same intensity towards heaven, you should never have been disappointed for the violence. What if, what if we were violent lovers again, man? Guys, what, what if we were violent lovers again? What if we were, what if we were people that were willing to walk down our streets and down our streets? But first, we gotta own this street. You gotta own this street, man. You gotta own this street. Husbands, wives, you need to own your covenants. Fathers, mothers, own your children. Own your children. Well, you know, they're rebellion. That's okay. Serve in any capacity. Well, what about me? That's not a question that's permissible in the kingdom of God. What about me? What about my needs? You have no needs. You have no needs. Your only need has been met by Jesus. That doesn't diminish the, the expectations in the covenant relationship. That doesn't mean that we, you know, that doesn't mean that we don't have expectations on our spouse or our children. That doesn't mean that we go into a complete 
sense of disorder and dysfunction and chaos in our lives. That's not what that's permitting. What I'm really saying is that if I'm more careful or if I care more about getting my needs met than serving the people around me, than serving my family first, I'm going to miss the whole, the whole purpose and the joy found in the service. You are powerful people. You are powerful people. We, you know, I, I attribute it like this. I like to use this analogy. We've been given one of those black credit cards with an unlimited, an unlimited credit card. And we're using like 60 bucks as the best. 60 bucks is our budget. We're spending far less than what we actually have the ability to spend. We have far less, we, have, we are using far less resource than what we actually have available in Christ. Oh man. See that maniacal look in my eye. I love it. I've become, I've become violent again. Praise God. And I hear him. I hear him so clearly. I hear his, I hear his passion towards my coworkers. I hear his passion when my wife and I get into a spat that I think I was right and she was wrong, and I yet I, I yielded and let and let it go completely because I care more about being in relationship than being right. And I yield at times of insecurity. I give it as an act of worship. You know, Dave made a comment, and so in, in a service meeting. A few weeks ago, he said in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, or no, I believe it was Jose, in the Old Testament, sacrifice, or, or praise, or excuse me, in the Old Testament, they used animals as a form of sacrifice. In the New Testament, our praise is our sacrifice. Yeah. So we get to live our lives in accordance and live our lives to yield before the Father and say, I'll praise you in the midst of you in the midst of everything. I'll praise you so that I'm a better father. I'll praise you because I want to be a better husband. I'll praise you because I want to be a better co-worker. I'll praise you because I want to be a better son. And it's not for any other reason. I'm not trying to attain something that I can't have outside the blood of Christ. I want to do it because I desire to be in a place where my covenant relationship with God means more to me than the breath that I breathe. Because it's in that place of my mentality. It's in that place of tension and friction with God. Of saying, God, I want to endure whatever's necessary so that my relationship with you will never dissipate, will never change. I'll get rid of all the distraction. I'll get rid of all the frustration. I'll put aside everything else that I may not have control over or that I've worried about, that I've doubt about, that I'm concerned about. I'll yield it all at your feet so that I can look in your eyes and say, I am yours. Would you make me? Would you make me a better man? Because that's who you are. You're the best father, the best lover. Make me that way. Whatever price I have to pay, I'll do it. Because in the end, this liminality, that's what shifts. That's what makes me a good witness. And I can witness with my life. Amen. I can witness in the truck with my coworker things out the window. I look at a woman walking on the street, but my eyes stay in the state of the road. I can witness when he hears, when my coworker says, man, you talk to your wife so kind and gentle. I really need to check myself when I call my bride or when I call my girlfriend. Because my life gets to witness even more sometimes.
walk in. The psychic stands up. Hi, how what are you doing? I'm great, how are you? I'm doing well. What can I do for you? I said, well, listen, I, I said, isn't this out weird? I'm actually not here for a reading. No? I said, no, I walked by your store and I, I felt this overwhelming sense of love for the person inside and I just needed to come in. You may not have ever had somebody do this before, but I just needed to ask if there's anything in your life that I can pray for. Anything at all. Do you have physical pain? Do you need to encouragement in any way? She goes, oh my goodness. That is absolutely crazy that you came in here. She goes, my, this business has been in my family for six generations. Six generations. She goes, my mom is Roman Catholic and I look around this picture of the Pope everywhere. I'm like, okay, this is one whacked out spot. <laughs> I'm the second shot with the Pope hanging on the wall. <laughs> Up your mind, people. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, she goes, six generations of business have been in my family. She said, but I, I just recently came to know God, and I've been asking for a way out. And I said, I need to lay hands on you right now. And she goes, would you pray for me? And in the midst, right there, I got to break off six generations of darkness and release the kingdom of God. you 
hardness of heart that needs to change. I ask that you change me. That you mold and shape us with fire. And that the things that we pray and the things that we sing about, that I want to be charmed by fire, that I worship you with everything, that I give you my last breath, that they would actually be realities that we walk out. Not for the sake of being able to live a powerful life, just to say that we live a powerful life, but because Bristol Borough needs it. Lord, would you make us encounters for people? Would you shape us and shift us? And would you teach us how to own our streets and how to own our houses before we can own the houses on, on, in our neighborhoods? Before we can own the borough, but Lord, we ask that you teach us how to own our lives. That you teach us how to steward our lives well. Because our lives will speak sometimes louder than our words do. And God, we ask that our lives will be perfect and powerful reflections of your goodness and your grace. God, I thank you for, for restoration of families, for reconciliation and marriage, Father. For thank you for healing and deliverance that needs to take place, Lord. And I thank you, Father, for broken hearts that say, God, I'm broken before you. I'm broken before you. I need you. I need you more. And it may not even have it. Sometimes our response to God doesn't come with an emotional reaction. Sometimes, sometimes it's just a simple yes. Yes, you can have it. And then walking it out. Father, I ask, I ask that you bless my family. 